This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are at the end of Season 8. Thank you all so much for being with us on this journey. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is the Dun Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Dan. Glad to have you here. Good to be here. I also want to welcome Heidi Schlumpf. She's executive editor at National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Heidi. It's so good to be back, David. I'm going to be honest and share with our listeners that the reason I missed the last episode is I was recovering from side effects from my second coronavirus vaccine shot. So as of yesterday, I am fully vaccinated. Glad to hear that. And glad that you're feeling better. Listeners, as you know, every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. That also works for Facebook. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to us by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about Biden's first 100 days and his recent speech to the nation. We're going to be talking about the efforts of some bishops to once again either deny or urge certain politicians like Joe Biden to not partake in the Eucharist. And we're going to be talking about recent studies that are showing an overall trend away from religion in American believers, but also especially how that affects the Catholic Church. But before we do that, I want to check in with the two of you. We're getting ready to end our season and have a summer break, and I was just wondering what the two of you are planning to do for the summertime. Heidi, what will you and your family be up to? Well, we're hoping that this summer will be a little more fun than last summer. We were pretty cautious last summer, although we did do a a small amount of vacationing and camping. So we have two vaccinated adults and two unvaccinated children. So we won't be going uh, to any large mass events inside or outside, but we're planning to make some time at the Jersey Shore, which is one of our regular vacation spots, as well as uh, a lake that my parents live on in Wisconsin. Beyond that, not a whole lot of plans. We're putting the pool up in the backyard again, hopefully some enjoy some enjoyable family time. So I won't be taking a break from, from work at NCR, and we have a lot of exciting things happening at NCR, I think, over the next couple months. So stay tuned there. 
And Dan, how about you? Yeah, regular listeners will know uh, because I know David and I, you and I have talked about this many times, basically every end of a spring season that in theology and academia, once the semester of the academic year ends, conference season begins, at least in in the disciplines that I work in. So theology and, and spirituality in particular. It's both exciting and exhausting. This year, like last year, most of the conferences have been moved to an online format, which is okay, but not the same. And I think like everybody listening and and all three of us, you know, we miss that human interaction, connecting with colleagues, seeing friends. Hopefully this will be the last year of that format, but that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm scheduled right now to spend a, a big chunk of the summer in Rome I've been named by the by the Franciscan Order as a theological priest to the general chapter for the world. So for those who don't know what a general chapter is, every six years, all the provincials of the Franciscan Order across the world, about 180 or so Franciscan friars and a few other elected capitulars, they're called, come together to deal with the business of the worldwide order of Franciscans. That includes the election of a new general minister. It includes documents of the order and legal kind of things that pertain to the running of of the community. And much like an ecumenical council like Vatican II, every six years, the general defeditorium, the curia of the Franciscan order, appoints experts, they're called. It seems very highfalutin, but in Latin, we call them periti or theological experts to serve as, you know, experts to advise the those who are running the chapter, the capitulars, the minister general himself and the staff, but also, and most importantly, to oversee the drafting and, and documenting uh, the drafting of the documents and then the kind of final articulation of the work of the chapter. So I'm not the only one. You know, there are lots of canon lawyers that are appointed and that sort of thing. But it's both a, a great compliment, but also means that a huge chunk of my time will be occupied with the work of serving my brothers and the church in this capacity. Those who are familiar with either Washington, D.C. or Rome in the middle of summer, this is supposed to take place mostly in July. They are very uncomfortable, hot and humid places to be. I'm not looking forward to that part of the picture, but I, you know, we'll see how it goes. And and again, I'm honored and privileged to serve in this capacity. That's awesome. We'll be in prayer about that for you and also for air conditioning. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Come Holy Ghost, you know, cool us down. (laughs) Enough of that fire. Maybe you'll overlap there and get a chance to uh, stop in and see Josh before he heads home. We have our national news editor coming back to the United States, but I think he's not moving more till more closer to the end of the summer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Josh and I, we were supposed to get together. We got together in the fall of 2019. I was over in Rome for a conference and to give a lecture. And then I was supposed to be back for a couple of weeks in March of 2020. But we all know what happened in the March of 2020, so that did not take place. So, yeah, it'd be great to, to see him and, and his spouse, Kate. Yeah, it'd be wonderful. David, what are you and your family going to do this summer? Well, so for me, it's going to be a lot of writing. I'm on the home stretch with a book that I've been working on for Yale for a while called The Accessorized Bible. I'm very excited. It has been, as I've said at certain points in other Francis Effect episodes, it's been rewritten now four times. I now feel very good about this particular version of it. I think that the argument is solid, and I think that, it, like most academic books, it will not make any splash at all, but it will at least, it, it, in, in its getting out, it will at least feel like something that I have wanted to say, as opposed to, <laughs> as is so often the case with writing generally and academic writing particularly, just writhing on the page, hoping that something coherent will come out. 
in and around that, we are enjoying the fact that there's more possibilities here for going out and being in the world. So my family and I have been walking more. The kids' school is wrapping up and we're getting ready to think about what that means for the summer in terms of getting out and, and exploring a little bit of the area around Chicago with some hikes and some things like that. But we're still a family that is going to stay pretty socially distanced, even though the two adults in the family have been vaccinated. I'm a germaphobe and we're very cautious people. There's going to be there's going to be a lot of hesitant exploration, but not a lot of kind of wild, we're out of the woods kind of approaches to things yet. So for me, mostly the summer is going to be writing and cleaning. <laughs> And running, right? Couch and to running. 5K. Couch to 5K is happening as well. So we're continuing to do that as a family and committed to staying in shape and to staying healthy. So all that is very good. Well, let's go ahead and get into the show. Like I said, we're going to be talking about President Biden's first 100 days, the continuation of the communion wars, and some folks that are leaving Catholicism and what that might mean for the church. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with my friends, David Dalton, Heidi Schlum. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. When President Joe Biden addressed Congress for the first time last week, several things were notable. For the first time, two women, Vice President Kamala Harris and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, sat behind him. Also, because of pandemic precautions, the chamber was sparsely filled and the audience members wore masks. After the speech, Biden stayed around and chatted with members of Congress from both parties in a rare public display of bipartisanship. Yet what was also notable was the content of the speech itself, which laid out an admittedly pro-government agenda with what he is calling the American Families Plan. It includes some $2 trillion for both tax cuts for families and programs designed to help families, including free preschool and community college, support for child care, and a tax credit for families with children. This comes on top of the $1.9 trillion American recovery plan of coronavirus stimulus that he signed last month and his $2.3 trillion American jobs plan, the infrastructure bill creating jobs by spending on roads, water pipes, the electrical grid, and efforts to shift to low-carbon energy sources. Clearly, Biden is a different Democrat than Bill Clinton, who famously said, quote, the era of big government is over, end quote. Of course, Clinton was the first Democratic president after Reagan, who even more famously said, quote, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Biden, by contrast, believes the government can help, especially as the country emerges from more than a year of pandemic suffering. He says he plans to pay for this spending by increased taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Heidi, how did these proposals from our country's second Catholic president square with the church's priorities and teachings? What's the Catholic response to Biden's first hundred days? Thanks, Dan. I uh, watched the speech on Wednesday night and was struck by this different attitude of we're here to help. People are suffering economically. We need to respond to the pandemic. We need to respond to our crumbling infrastructure that hasn't been had money spent on it. And we need to respond to the needs of people, especially poor people, families with children 
who are suffering economically. So it it jived with a lot of this Catholic's priorities in my own personal way. But what I found interesting is that right away the discussion turned to, well, how are we going to pay for it? This is big government, big spending. But what's interesting is that there is quite a bit of support for this kind of government intervention and use of government to respond to the needs of the people. And this does jive with Catholic social teaching in many ways. The poll that gets quoted a lot is there was a recent NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that found that for the first time in a number of years, a majority of the public, 57 percent, now are saying that the government should do more to solve problems and to meet the needs of Americans versus the smaller amount, only 39 percent right now, saying the government is doing too many things that should be left to businesses and individuals. So I think we're seeing a shift there. And even things like the infrastructure plan, the New York Times had a poll that said even three in 10 Republicans support that plan. But what we're hearing from Republicans is a pushback to that. So I think we're going to hear more about that. What also struck me was Biden's comment in the speech about how trickle-down economics have never worked. This idea that people who have made a lot of money, especially the gazillionaires who have done very well even during the the pandemic, are going to have to start stepping up and paying their share. And that really, you know, reminds me of the language we heard in Fratelli Tutti from Pope Francis, who also criticized this laissez-faire economics. So I think there's a lot of points of connection there. Now, we're not hearing that from some aspects of the church who want to talk about more culture war issues. But I think this debate about whether government is really there to help people and not just be completely hands off is one we're going to hear more about. You know, I think you bring up such really important points because listeners to the show over the years will know it's something the three of us reiterate time and again that the purpose of government from the Catholic Church's perspective is to promote and protect the common good, period. It's not about individual wealth. It's not about facilitating independent success at the expense of or in contrast to or in competition with others in society. That's the kind of laissez-faire free market capitalism, which itself is a form of idolatry. It's a god uh, with a lowercase g that's worshipped by particularly the wealthy and the aspiring, those who aspire to be wealthy. And it's something that sadly has infiltrated a number of well-meaning, self-identified Catholics. But I think you hit the nail on the head, Heidi, when you talked about Unfortunately, there's a lot of silence on the part of church leaders who, as we'll talk about to some degree in the next segment of our episode, you know, have inculcated themselves in partisan politics identified as culture war issues. These are particular, discrete, at times very important issues, but they distract from this sort of more comprehensive and global issues like the common good. I think the other thing that always strikes me and why I'm heartened to see the polling reflect, I think, a growing awareness among Americans, both those who identify as Democrats, those who identify as Republicans or the, or the independents and noncommittal, is what Biden said is true. Trickle-down economics has never worked. The whole thing was a farce, like so much of a certain right-wing political rhetoric, whether it's around issues that seek to kind of obfuscate systemic racism or downplay injustices to communities or to, you know, international relations, what what have you, you can pick your topic. But the question to me seems to be, everyone needs to ask, when one's advocating against government spending for the sake of the collective whole, 
and people are saying we should oppose this, we should oppose this, one should ask the question, who does such opposition benefit? And if it doesn't benefit you and it doesn't benefit your neighbor and it doesn't benefit those from the Catholic perspective who are most marginalized, vulnerable, and suffering, then it's an unjust policy. It's not able to be sustained, at least in good Catholic faith. I want to complexify this a little bit because I think I agree with everything that you're saying, Dan, but also in looking at the idea of trickle-down economics, in one sense, that's a delayed gratification kind of tactic. If you let the rich have more resources, then eventually you will benefit. Okay, so there's we know that, that there's a delayed gratification model that has been accepted by the right for a long time. That's the claim, though, That's, right? You're not saying it's right. I'm not saying yeah. it's right, but yeah. I'm going to complexify it now because I, my wife, Kira, and I just got done watching a really great series from the Independent Lens on PBS called Philly DA, and I recommend it to anybody that is out there. And this is a progressive district attorney, Larry Krasner, who is there in Philadelphia and, like Kim Fox here in Chicago, came in on a reformist kind of agenda in the district attorney's office, trying to reform things like cash bail, trying to mitigate low-level offenses, trying to stop the school-to-prison pipeline, things like that. Again and again in these eight episodes of Philly DA, we see Krasner going into or Krasner's representatives going into these meetings in various places around Philadelphia. And the response that he's using the language also of this stuff is supported by the data and it will work. You just need to give it time. And what we're seeing again and again is people standing up and saying, we have a problem on our back porch now. And so in both these cases, we have the left saying, you know, we need to put money into infrastructure. We need to put money into reform. We need to put money into changing some baseline policies. And we see a pushback that says, no, we need the immediacy now. On the other side, we see trickle-down economics and real hungry people now. I think that there's a substantive difference between these two things, but I think we need to be careful about simply talking about immediacy versus a more kind of wait-and-see prospect, and we need to talk about those qualitative differences. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, but in some ways these are real distinctions. You know, they are, to use a cliche, apples and oranges that, they, yes, they are both fruit. So they seem to have the same structural delayed gratification model that you're describing. In my eyes, the big difference is, A, what is being advocated and for whose benefit? And B, whether or not what's being proposed is actionable. <laughs> you know, trickle-down economics is a theory. It's not a plan. <laughs> there is no sort of actual flowchart. There is a vague sort of presentation that if you allow the wealthy to get more wealthy, there is a sort of, you know, last hope ditch effort that, well, maybe through their grandiosity and generosity, these wealthy people will hire more people. That's the idea. Now, I think one of the things that has really shifted the attention per the polls that Heidi mentioned is the fact that the stimulus checks during this, both under the Trump administration and to, you know, let the record show, I'm going to say something positive about former President. President Trump, he was right about wanting to get that money into the direct hands of American people. His own party, however, including congressional leadership, opposed it, you know, strenuously. Nevertheless, that and then President Biden's subsequent stimulus packages, these have had actually measurable in sometimes relatively immediate positive consequences, much to the chagrin of those who want to support you know, corporation wealth and private wealth and equity and that sort of thing. I, I bring that up because, you know, it's actual kind of evidentiary 
benefits versus a, a really abstracted theory that was never real to begin with, was just a smokescreen to justify not supporting the poor and vulnerable and protecting the independently wealthy and corporations. Yeah, I'll just jump in here too and say, you know, I'm all for delayed gratification. It's a value, a, a skill I try to teach my children. But I think we don't even really need to debate this anymore. Trickle down economics didn't work. It didn't trickle down in the immediacy or in the long term. And I think we also need to look at what are some of these things that Biden wants to invest in. And they're things that are worthy of investment. So education, this idea of, you know, expanding beyond just K through 12, whether it's at one end with preschool or at the other end with a couple years of more community college, the idea of investing in green energy rather than sitting back and letting other countries around the world take the lead on this. There's a little bit of a America first in the speech around some of that stuff. Some of the investments that they're talking about in the families plan and in the infrastructure plan, there are estimates that say this will lead to cutting child poverty in half in America. So the, when he mentioned that in his speech and some Republicans refused to clap for that, I thought, who doesn't clap for cutting child poverty in half? These are worthwhile, important, Catholic-supported things to spend money on. Now, I always find it interesting when the other party is all of a sudden worried about the possibility of inflation or concerns about deficit spending, because, of course, there were no concerns about that when they spend or cut taxes on other things. But I think we're going to hear a lot of that push from Republicans. Yeah, it's predictable. And in, in the same way, you know, this is what you're referring to, Heidi, is back in 2017 when the one legislative success of the Trump administration was when the, when they pushed through a $1.5 trillion tax cut for the wealthy and for corporations. That was $1.5 trillion of unnecessary debt that benefited the most wealthy and the most powerful. And there were no qualms. There were no concerns. There was no pearl clutching on the part of the Republicans who proposed those measures and who voted it through both the House and Senate and pres then President Trump who signed it. So, so the hypocrisy is rank. We've seen that already. And I think you're right that, you know, it's curious how now they're not in power. They're not controlling the, the purse strings. And all of a sudden there's a lot of concern. And, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to be we're adding to the national debt and all this other stuff. It's all smoke screens. It's all nonsense. I think you bring up a really good point, too, about those who whether they're just posturing for their base and it raises questions about the damage that's been done to the formation of one's conscience among the base, that certain politicians have distorted reality in such a way and, and contributed to a way of thinking that would allow for people who see themselves as people of good faith, justifying policies that harm or working against policies that would help those who are most vulnerable. Case in point, children in poverty, people who refuse to do that, who reduce human life like that of children in this country to a political game or pawn or, well, this help is being initiated or being presented or discussed by the opposing party. Therefore, I'm not going to support it. I'm not even going to clap to hear about this policy. That, to me, screams of an anti-life perspective. There's nothing pro-life about that. You're deliberately working against human life and the flourishing of it, which, again, is the purpose of common good and therefore the government. You know, I don't want to hear any of these Republicans in particular who are against this sort of support then cry abortion, abortion or some other pro-life chant and claim that the Democrats are anti-life or not pro-life or something like this because they themselves aren't demonstrably. And I think that you're pointing at 
a real kind of mechanism that we see operating again and again. Both of you are pointing to this. This morning, as we're taping this on NPR, I heard some politicians from the Republican state legislature in Missouri basically saying, listen, we're not a democracy. It's not our job to respond to the needs of the voters. They elected us to basically do what's in their best interest, even when they've been misinformed. And so there's an entire philosophy of government at work here that basically is going to eradicate any kind of immediate need if it doesn't fit a particular narrative. And I I think that's part of what we're engaged with here is that's not just at the politician level. That's in some ways affected and infected the level of the leadership of the church. And in some ways, it has affected the rank and file of the church to think that, you know, somehow we don't need to actually listen to the immediate need of the hungry person in front of us because there's a greater need that needs to be served here. And I think it's important to for listeners to realize, too, that the three of us, I, I think I'm being fair in speaking on our, our collective behalf, we're not blindly supporting Joe Biden and the administration and everything they're doing. Case in point is there's a real crisis, a human humanitarian crisis on our southern border. It was exacerbated by the horrific policies and actions of the Trump administration. But now that there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak, with the Biden administration and his staff, they have to do something about this. And here we here again, we have a life issue. We have children separated from parents that still need to be reunited. We have outbreaks of COVID-19 in detention centers. We have people starving, people fleeing violence. This is a real issue. And, you know, this is something that even people who are supporters of President Biden have pointed out needs to be addressed. So this isn't like President Biden comes in and he's got it all figured out and he's the anti-Trump and that, you know, Trump's totally the bad guy and Biden's totally the good guy. It's certainly more complicated. But on this particular issue of the family's plan and other stimulus packages, I think you know, he and his administration is, is right on target. There's, we'll hold him, like others are as well, accountable for needing to be more inclusively whole life. So NCR this week or today, as we're uh, recording, has an article from actually our sister publication, Global Sisters Report, that has reaction from religious women around the country to Biden's first 100 days. And that is precisely their point. While he's strong on a number of things, he is not where we want him to be on this issue of immigration and the crisis at the border, and especially religious women who are doing so much of the ministry there geographically in that area. They have a lot of credibility in this critique. So I think that's a fair one. And we can see evidence that Biden has been pushed to the left. But as you have just said, there is more that could happen to push him to the left and to push him to more progressive issues. When we come back after the summer, I'm sure that we'll have more to talk about on this front. But for right now, we're going to need to move on in our discussion. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. The more things change, the more they stay the same. During the 2004 presidential election, then-candidate Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, a practicing Roman Catholic, was targeted by conservative groups and some bishops for his support of what the United States Supreme Court has determined is the constitutional right for a woman to access abortion care. As a result, some bishops publicly insisted that Kerry be denied communion if he were to attend Mass in their dioceses. The debates were heated 
and the responses among both the electorate and church leaders varied widely. But the particular issue of how to engage with a Catholic as president was ultimately not breached since George W. Bush won re-election that year. Fast forward 17 years, and now we have a Democratic president in the White House who is Roman Catholic. Not only has the issue of the relationship between one's public policy position and participation in the Eucharist resurfaced as a culture war issue among the U.S. bishops again, but now the social and ecclesial contexts are more polarized in the wake of one of the most divisive presidential administrations in American history. Several culture warrior bishops have preempted a potential USCCB response to the issue by issuing their own public statements on the matter of Catholic politicians who support legal abortion access. Such prelates include Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione of San Francisco, Bishop Thomas Olmsted of Phoenix, Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, Kansas, and Archbishop Samuel Aquila of Denver. Last week, the Associated Press published a story that signaled the possibility the USCCB could vote to have its Committee on Doctrine issue a formal letter, quote, clarifying the church's stance on an issue that has repeatedly vexed the bishops in recent decades, unquote. Predictably, the public responses of individual bishops to the proposal vary, with several bishops objecting to their colleagues' single-issue obsession. Dan, you've written and spoken about this issue before, including in earlier episodes of The Francis Effect. What do you make of these latest developments? Well, what I make of them is exactly how you began. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And there's absolutely, in some ways, nothing different about what's going on now as compared to what happened in 2004. The only difference being, as a lot of the reporting has pointed out, this is the first time we've had a Catholic president since the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973, you know, famously Kennedy, you know, was assassinated a decade. You know, part of me feels a little bit frustrated, well, not a little bit, very frustrated, but a little bit, you know, at a loss for words, because I think everything that needs to be said has been said. It's been said by the Holy Father. It's been said by a number of bishops. It's been said by the great teachers and and doctors of the church over the last 2,000 years when it comes to the Eucharist is not a weapon. It is not a carrot. Therefore, it's not a reward, nor is it a stick, a form of punishment. And I'll just quote here. Well, I'll summarize. I'm not going to quote, but from the Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas, the, the common doctor of the Catholic Church, says that the Eucharist has a threefold significance. First, it's with regard to the past that commemorates the Lord's passion. In the present time, it represents ecclesial unity or koinonia. And with regard to the future, it is viaticum. And this is really important. It's food for the journey that anticipates or foreshadows the blessedness of heaven. And he says, quoting from people like St. Augustine and Hugh of St. Victor and Peter Lombard and other great theologians and experts in the ancient era and in the medieval era, that the Eucharist is best understood as a spiritual food. This is something that Augustine talks about as well. Augustine even distinguishes, he says, there are two ways one can receive the Eucharist. The first way is to receive it sacramentally, which is recognizing that anybody, regardless of their quote-unquote state of grace, as it would be called in the late medieval era, receives the present sacramental presence of Christ. That's indisputable. But for those who are perhaps more rightly disposed, because no one is perfectly disposed to receive the Eucharist. None of us are worthy of such great a gift. That's why we pray the penitential act. That's why in the Eucharistic prayer, we pray that we're not worthy that the Lord should enter under our roof. That's everybody, including the presider. 
But Augustine says there may be some people through some divine grace who are more disposed and can receive the Eucharist not only sacramentally, but spiritually as well. What that means exactly, nobody really knows. Augustine doesn't elaborate, but it seems to suggest something like you have a, a, a clearer realization or awareness. And many of us, you know, might have that experience where week in and week out, day in and day out, we receive the Blessed Sacrament and we recognize through faith that this is the sacramental presence of Christ. It's food for the journey. It's nourishment and, and a healing remedy, as Augustine also says. Um, and Bonaventure will repeat him in the 13th century. But some of us may have moments, too, where there's a, an experience of transcendence beyond the ordinary, and that might be a participation in what Augustine calls a spiritual sharing in the Blessed Sacrament. I'll just say one other thing, and then I'm curious to hear what you two have to think, which is the one recourse that seems to drive all of this for these bishops is to Canon 915 in the Code. It's a famous canon because it is part of the penal structure of the Code of Canon Law, which issues you know, remedies and restrictions. And it's a two-parter, basically. The first part it has to do with those who are under interdict, which is a form of canonical punishment, and those who have been declared excommunicated. Excommunication is not a punishment. And it was striking that some of these bishops quoted by both the Associated Press and in Chris White's reporting and elsewhere don't seem to understand that distinction, which again isn't surprising because these bishops by and large are not theological or canonical experts, not all of them. But interdict is a punishment. Excommunication is something that's declared when through the very act that somebody commits, they remove themselves from communion with the church, right? So you can't kick somebody out of the Catholic church. That's a misnomer. You're not excommunicated. A declaration of excommunication is formally decreed. Why do I bring this up? Because it's not even that first part. President Joe Biden is not outside of communion with the church. He has not been formally declared excommunicated, nor has he, through canonical trial, received an interdict. So he's not under any kind of canonical punishment. So why does Canon 915 apply in the eyes of some of these bishops and others, including right-wing organizations like CatholicVote.org? And it's because of this other clause. And it says, and other, so I'll just read the whole the canon. It's very brief. It says, those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty... And this is the clause, others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. That's all it says. Famously, my canon law professor, the Reverend Dr. James Corridan, one of the greatest canon lawyers in the United States, you know, has received all the top honors by the Canon Law Society of America and the CTSA, et cetera. He's often said over and over again that the Code of Canon Law is not an answer book. It is a theological document. And like all forms of law, especially Roman law, which the code is modeled after, there's means for interpretation. And this is where I'll wrap up and point out that, you know, the reason that this canon gets invoked by a lot of these figures who wish to deny certain politicians communion is because they claim that it will cause grave scandal is sort of their, you know, smoking gun or their concern. It's interesting that in the official commentary of the Canon Law Society of America, commissioned by them, in an article by John Yules, who is commenting on, in an extensive way on this canon, he says that this issue of scandal is a lot more complicated than it seems at first. And this is something the U.S. bishops who are blindly, like the Archbishop of San Francisco or Denver or Detroit, for instance, pushing for this, don't take into consideration. And what Father Yule says is the fact of the actual scandal is, moreover, culturally relative. What causes scandal in one part of the world may not cause scandal elsewhere. In North America, the faithful often are more scandalized by the church's denial of sacraments and sacramentals than by the sin that occasions it, because it seems to them contrary to the mercy and forgiveness commanded by Christ, end quote. 
And I could not agree more fully. Maybe the very last thing I'll say about this is there's nothing in the code that mandates that somebody be denied communion. This just accounts for the possibility. Yeah, well, Dan, I don't disagree with anything that you've said. And I would just add that the canon makes clear that if there is to be any action done, it would be done by the individual's bishop. So some of this reporting that has come out in the past week or so from the Associated Press and Washington Post presents this, you know, as if this is some decision that the USCCB could make that would then apply to all bishops in the United States. And that's not the case. They're they're working on this teaching document, which would require a two-thirds vote, which it's, I think, unlikely to get, and then also would have to go to the Vatican. But the implementation of whether to make that decision to apply that punishment, if you will, of denial of communion is up to that person's local bishop. Now, President Biden actually has two, right, because he lives two places, both in Washington, D.C., where his local bishop, Cardinal Wilton Gregory, has already publicly said that he does not plan to invoke that or to use denial of communion as a way of trying to make a statement about some of the policies of the Democratic Party under Biden about abortion. What happened that was interesting last week is that Biden's other bishop, Bishop Maluli from Wilmington, Delaware, his replacement was announced as Maluli is 77, so even past retirement age. And the new bishop, uh, William Koenig, had his first press conference. And of course, right away, people asked him, are you going to deny Biden communion? Because Maluli had said that he wouldn't deny him communion. So he gave a very politic answer. I can read it here. I certainly pray for him every day, Koenig said. I would certainly be open to having a conversation in the future with him. As a bishop, I'm called to teach the fullness and the beauty of the Catholic faith. It remains to be seen, but I, I'm not expecting that a brand new bishop is going to want to step into that fray immediately. But some of these details about how this would happen are a little bit complicated and get lost in some of the reporting. We are going to be seeing an increased amount of coverage of this issue between now and the bishop's June meeting in the middle of June. So be prepared for a lot more controversy, I think. What are you thinking about this, David? Well, I'm thinking about a couple of things. One, the questions of authority, and we've talked about this before on the program, this idea of a kind of soft magisterium where procedures are not followed and yet a consequence follows. And so the possibility of denying someone or the threat of denying someone without actually going through the canonical processes that are demanded for that to happen. So another canon that's important to remember here, and I can't remember the exact canon number, but basically it says that the baptized have the right to their good name and their reputation. And that if you want as a Catholic to deprive a fellow baptized brother, sister, or non-binary person of their good name or their reputation, you have to follow procedures and protocols to do that. It has to be a public process in an open forum. It has to be a written interdict. It can't just be a verbal one. All these things have to be followed, and they're very important. The problem is that not only Catholic laypersons violate this and therefore create scandal and gossip, but we also see leaders that violate this procedurally again and again. And that's of great concern to me because simply the reporting of a bishop saying this without the process ever being followed can create the effect of the process without having to invoke the process. 
Yeah. The canon referring to Davis Canon 220, no one is permitted to harm illegitimately the good reputation which a person possesses, nor to injure the right of any person to protect his or her own privacy. And we see these two canons in tension. And, and you're right to say about Canon 220, that is a foundational canon. It's one of, you know, the structure of the code is interesting. They're in these several books. They're topically organized. And the opening series of canons in which 220 falls pertains to the foundational issues. It's weird to say that's more important than another, but they're foundational. And so that one's right to privacy, which is what the can the code of canon law will refer to as internal forum, which is why, as Heidi said, only the person's pastor and pastor in the church's teaching is not your local pastor. That is not the same thing. The pastor is the local bishop, the local ordinary. In some ways, I think the incoming bishop of Wilmington, Delaware made a good point. He's open to having a conversation, but he cannot comment on these things. So it's highly irregular and a violation of the code, in fact. I would say, part back to Father John Hules' commentary about scandal, I think these four bishops in particular that we mentioned and others who are pushing this and, and making this an issue are at very least violating Canon 220. They're also outside their own jurisdiction. They have no say in this regard. And thirdly, you know, I think it's a matter of, I guess, just reiterating this point that you said earlier, David, about, about the, the good reputation and the right to privacy, which is a, they're speaking about things about which they know nothing. You know, they don't know the state of Biden's spiritual life. And one would assume that Cardinal Gregory and uh, the new Bishop of Wilmington are, first of all, they're the ones who have that jurisdiction and authority, but they would also know better. There should be fraternal deference, is what I'm trying to say. Well, I will also say, and this will prefigure what we're going to be, be talking about in the third segment, but it's a failure to read the room. The, the quotation that you gave about the fact that scandal in North America may be different from scandal in other parts of the world, I think that's the scandal that we're seeing right now. We're seeing the effects of bishops that are basically playing to one corner of the audience, to one very conservative set of kind of maybe donors. I don't even know. But the whole notion that somehow that they are that they're winning more souls by these very kind of draconian actions, to me, it just seems like it's a non-starter and it's demonstrably a non-starter. And I think this is interesting given that Biden is not spending a lot of time talking about or legislating about abortion. I was watching a presentation at the Paulus Center in Boston, a virtual presentation last week, and John Carr from Georgetown University and formerly of the Bishops' Conference made a comment that said, Biden has not said one word about abortion. That's one word he hasn't said. And in his speech uh, last week, he didn't mention abortion at all. He didn't mention very many culture war issues at all. He did have a brief shout out for uh, transgender rights. So all this hoopla about abortion. Now, admittedly, the party is pretty extreme in its support of abortion rights. And there have been some reversing of executive orders under Trump that have been more in line with the pro-choice views of the Democratic Party. But it's not like Biden has made this the centerpiece of his presidency. And, and in fact, the exact opposite is true, is as we talked about in this first segment, is that the economic suffering of so many in the country is what he's trying to address. And by addressing child poverty and education and providing jobs for people, it's likely, and I'll make a little prediction here, that abortion rates will, as they often do under Democratic presidents, go down. So rather than attacking it by making it illegal, he makes the 
economic situation such that women who find themselves facing a pregnancy they didn't plan might not be so stressed economically and might be more open to choosing life. You know, it belies that the real thing that's going on here is what you said, David, is this catering to a specific agenda in a certain portion of the church. And that's you know, that's the culture war. That's what we're stuck with, unfortunately. And we see this. Another thing that reminds me of our, our first segment is the deeply partisan nature of this, that this is not really a Catholic issue. This is a Republican talking point issue, because I did not see the U.S. bishops or others call for the denial of communion to, for instance, Attorney General William Barr, who, in stark contrast to explicit church teaching about the inadmissibility of the death penalty, pushed through numerous executions. He killed and authorized the killing, I should say. He authorized the killing of dozens of people in the name of the country, in the name of the American people. That is a grave sin in which he persisted, in which he was obstinate. And so I didn't hear that. So it's a picking and choosing about which intrinsic evils, which inadmissible evils certain people want to get worked up about. And they just so happen, coincidentally, to align with what the Republican Party finds most interesting or most inflammatory. So I don't think we can shy away from this. I hate that it is become so political or so partisan, so sectarian, but that's not church teaching. That's politics that has infected church teaching in such a way or infected church leaders leaders that they maybe unbeknownst to them, they're not even aware that they're doing it anymore, which is sad because I think, as Michael Sean Winter says in his column that was published today, these are not unintelligent men. These are not, we, we assume, you know, people who are people of bad faith. You know, they obviously were drawn to ministry, God willing, to help people, but they've become so distorted by partisan issues that they cannot see the totality of the richness and beauty, to quote the new bishop from Wilmington, Delaware, of the Catholic faith, which centers on the common good and requires a a fuller kind of reckoning with the code and its theological and penal implications. Well, I'm certain, unfortunately, that we're going to address this issue again when we come back in the fall, because I'm certain that it won't go away. But for now, we need to move on. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. For a number of years, surveys conducted by research organizations such as Gallup, the Public Religion Research Initiative, and the Pew Research Group have all shown the same remarkable trend. Religious identity in America is shifting dramatically. In fact, a recent Gallup poll has shown that for the first time in the 80 years since they have been gathering this sort of data, American membership in religious organization has dropped below 50%. A recent article by Rebecca Bretton Weiss in the National Catholic Reporter looked at the data for these declines and dug behind the numbers to find some of the stories of why folks and particularly Catholic folks, are leaving institutional religion. One of the key factors driving these departures, Weiss found, was the long association of Catholic bishops with the culture wars and the religious right. While that's been part of the equation for quite a while, it seems that the COVID pandemic has given many Catholic worshipers an excuse to step away from participation, and many seem uninterested in coming back. David, you've talked here on the show about the fact that you've belonged to a number of religious denominations during your faith journey. You're Catholic now. 
What do you think of these declining demographics? And what should we be taking away from these stories? Well, I think I've, I've said on this program, but I know that I've said in other venues that my first experience with Christians when I was growing up as an atheist in South Georgia was them condemning me. And so a lot of my personal history as a person who is thinking about the teachings of Jesus Christ and is trying to live the teachings of Jesus Christ has been that memory of exclusion and trying to live a different kind of witness than that exclusionary witness. And so when I look at any particular religious denomination, and I've been affiliated with Presbyterians, I've been affiliated with the Quaker the Religious Society of Friends. I've taught in Methodist institutions and Baptist institutions, and I'm currently Catholic. I encounter the same kind of mechanism happening again and again. As numbers begin to decline, you get a certain remnant within that begins to shout, well, it's decline that's happening because we simply aren't teaching the right kind of exclusions. And if we just tighten up our borders, and if we just make the right people feel like they shouldn't exist, then we're going to be doing God's will, and God will bless us by having the numbers increase again. And and so this is nothing that I have seen that is exclusive to Catholics. I see it happening in every kind of Christian denomination. But I will say, to quote certain people like Steve Brown, the evangelical radio host, it comes from the pit of hell and it smells like sulfur. I really don't like that kind of reaction. And my particular take on this is that what Rebecca Bratton Weiss is quoting here and what she's reporting here is in line with my own anecdotal experience. When you treat people like they don't belong and they shouldn't exist, or when you try and say to people who have learned the gospel and have learned the the kind of truth of Jesus Christ that they need to start excluding people in the name of Jesus Christ, they're going to find a different place to worship. And I think that that's an appropriate and very healthy response. You know, it's interesting. I appreciate this kind of pointing to this sort of schadenfreude of certain Catholics, you know, we might identify them as right wing or what have you, who oftentimes point back to the homily that then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger gave during the funeral services for Pope John Paul II when he talked about a smaller, leaner church or something to this effect. What they don't always take into consideration, though, is what he said as Bishop of Rome, Pope Benedict XVI, some years later, when he talked about the need for a a missiology, a kind of missionary or evangelical approach of attraction. And his point was exactly this, that the gospel message is not one of condemnation. It's not one fact in John's gospel last Wednesday, the, the gospel of the day was Jesus saying, I, the Father didn't send me to condemn you. That's not what this is about. You know, in effect, you'll condemn yourself more or less, right? Which is another way also of reading Matthew 25. You know, the goats kind of self-select by not taking responsibility. In any event, you know, this idea that Pope Francis then picks up in Evangelii Gaudium and elsewhere in his writing and in his ministry of this need to be missionary disciples. Famously in paragraph 120 of Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis says, we can no longer say that we are missionary and disciples, but that everyone by virtue of their baptism is a missionary disciple. Why do I bring this up? Because the sort of battening down the hatches, the sort of you know building walls, the sort of unnecessary and restrictive tests, as it were, for what constitutes authenticity in Orthodox Catholicism is not in keeping with the gospel message. It's not in keeping with the church's tradition. These are, you know— ad hoc things that that various people are, are presenting, including in time some bishops. And so I, I just think it's really interesting. 
I'm not surprised like you, David, I'm not surprised to see people leave. And I also, I have to wonder at times, is this actually the work of the Holy Spirit that these women and men who have become so frustrated by the grave scandal the bishops continue to perpetuate on the church, that that they they are driven by the Holy Spirit to find a place of Christian worship? Sadly, it may be at times outside of communion with the Catholic Church. That is heartbreaking to me. I think it's a grave scandal to use that language. Yeah. Dan, you mentioned that we're supposed to be attracting people. And I think sometimes in a bit of irony, what is attractive to people is this idea that they can judge other people. Like being judgy is human nature, isn't it? And so it it appeals to our worse angels and not our, our better angels. What I found interesting about Rebecca's story, which by the way, was the number one read story last week at NCR. I think it really struck a nerve and it really resonated with a lot of people, was that it wasn't just the actions of the bishops that had caused these uh, number of folks that she interviewed to question their affiliation with the, the church, but it was also the actions at the parish level. So priests who were giving pro-Donald Trump homilies, or fellow parishioners who were, you know, cheering on the whole MAGA, you know, white nationalist movements. And what struck me is that a couple of the folks she interviewed had been converts to Catholicism. And so I do think there is a segment of our church, we tend to think of it as the more traditionalist side, that does exert a lot of energy in being missionary disciples and trying to attract people often from evangelical Christianity to see the beauty in Catholicism. And people make that jump from possibly evangelical Protestantism into Catholicism. And then the people she was interviewing then were shocked when the very people who had helped them to see the beauty of Catholicism were now the ones who were so easily embracing some of the ugliness in our culture and in our politics and causing them to question what, you know, whether their uh, conversion or continued membership in this church was appropriate. So this is all happening in a segment of the church that maybe progressive Catholics are less familiar with, but among some of these bloggers and writers and other personalities on the right, that, you know, they were both doing good good evangelization, and now they're sending people to the exits, as our headline said. You know, it reminds me, too, of something Jesus addressed in his own earthly ministry with his own followers, right? These are people who said yes to the call to follow him, were attracted to the ministry of of God and Christ Jesus. And he had to, at least as the synoptics recount it, take them at one point literally aside and say, following me is not about being on my right and being on my left. It's not about being elite. It's not about being right. Famously, he says in several of the synoptics, you know, a lot of people say, Lord, Lord, but you'll be surprised who enters the kingdom of heaven, meaning that just because you say the right thing, just because you think you're the one who is, you know, more pure or better at this or what have you, that's not exactly what God's reign is all about. And I'm reminded, of course, of the famous short stories of Flannery O'Connor, when she really, in, in very provocative ways, points out like, the kingdom of heaven is going to look very surprising to a lot of people who think that they're the ones who are, in their sanctimonious ways, the spiritual elite or the orthodox, quote unquote. And so I, I think that's really notable that Jesus, in his own earthly ministry, recognized that this was going to be a temptation for people to lord a certain elitism, a certain sort of perceived or projected perfectionism over others. That is not Catholicism. That is not Christianity. 
I had a conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with a Jesuit by the name of Bill Kane, and he's famous for being a writer and a, a television writer and those kinds of things. And he's just recently written a, a book called The Diary of Jesus Christ, where he's sort of telling some of these gospel stories, but from Jesus's point of view, which it's a fascinating book and I recommend it. But one of the things that he does in there is he talks about Judas as a character. And in his imagining of Judas as a character, Judas is a product of intimate abuse. Judas has been harmed by those that said that they loved him. And this plays out in his relationship with Jesus. And so there's one point where Jesus says, what father would, when asked for an egg, would then give a stone? And Judas responds to Jesus and says, I know fathers like that. And then at the end of the book, this is why Cain says that Judas insisted on betraying Jesus with a kiss because it's that intimacy. Judas wanted to show Jesus, this is what it means when you say that you're going to love me. This is what love really looks like. This is the real face of love. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because I think that some of this exclusionary response comes from people who are genuinely hurting and are genuinely unhealed. And I think that sometimes progressives like me can look at them and think of them as having some kind of deficiency in their character when really what I need to be doing is praying for them. And what I need to be doing is trying to help to bring healing, not only to the vulnerable that I see, but also to the victimizers that I see. I don't always know how to do that. And that's a failing of my own. But I just want to inject that into the conversation that I don't really see this as an us against them kind of problem within Catholicism. I see that I have to find a way to live with these people that right now, this is the way that they think that they're genuinely pleasing God. It doesn't make sense to me. But I'm actually asking for your wisdom, the both of you, about how to move forward and be a Catholic with other Catholics who I see to be hateful bigots because they're all around me. It's interesting, you know, that you mentioned Judas and that's really a, a really I'm curious to read that book. That sounds really fascinating. I'm also reminded just coincidentally this weekend, I caught a significant portion of the 1974, I think it was, version of film version of Jesus Christ Superstar, which I had not seen in many years. You know, there's been more recently that famous live TV version with John Legend. And then in 2000, there was a British production of it, which was also very good. But in a way that's not represented in those latter two filmed versions or the stage version, I thought the actor who plays Judas is so extraordinary because even physically, even in his expressions, he's able to express something that the songs themselves don't convey, that this actor brings forward is the complexity of a human person struggling with how to make sense of what's going on. What is he? He sees something powerful of God operating in Christ Jesus, and yet he's driven, at least in this depiction, by a desire to do what's right, social justice, care for the marginalized, the poor, and so on. So it's you just, as you were saying that, David, you brought that to mind. I think in response to your question, one one thing I would say, and this is true, truly, and not something I'm always good at, but but the answer is modeling. The answer is the starting point is there has to be another way, and in order for there to be another way, and this I draw from Pope Francis's wisdom and exhortation to us, is to be missionary disciples, and for people to realize that authentic Christianity and Orthodox Catholicism is not represented by those who beat people over dogmatically or with any other sort of restriction or qualification, but by those who, through self-sacrificial love and support and care and invitation, welcome others into this heavenly feast that we are so for fortunate to partake in some degree in this life. 
David, I also appreciate you bringing up that concern and pointing to the need for healing and not wanting to, you know, I mean, we could be accused of judging the judges, right? And it's, it's an endless circle. I do think it's fair to do a story about this. I was the editor that assigned it in terms of holding up what we see as something that might be dangerous and hurting the church. But just judging those who are judging is not the solution. I do think that I agree with Dan about the modeling. So I think that more progressive or inclusive types of Catholics who can model a more inclusive way of being Christians will eventually attract folks. And much of this debate about Magath Catholicism is happening in white Catholicism. And I think if you talk to Catholics of color, whether African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, they're so busy dealing with racism, discrimination, violence that's going on in their communities that this is not the debate that they're having. And if we as more progressive Catholics can put our attention there on the importance of living out our faith in the world in that way, I think maybe that could be attractive. That's such an important point, Heidi. Thanks for bringing that up because that's it also unveils again the solipsism of these debates. You know, it's very self-referential, very self-centered, not taking into consideration the broad diversity and experiences of Catholics. So Listeners, we know that you've been with us on this journey, and you know that we don't always get the answers right. And so please know that we're praying for you, and we ask for you to be praying for us as we take this break over the summer. We're looking forward to being back with you in the fall. Heidi and Dan, it's been so good to be with you during these two seasons, and I'm looking forward to more. But for right now, I wish you both a great summer, and thanks for being here today. Same to you both. Always a pleasure. And to our listeners, we'll see you in the fall. Thank you, David and Dan. I've really enjoyed co-hosting with you guys, and I'm, I'm looking forward to more in the future. The Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at various places around the greater Chicago, Illinois area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Please note their website has recently changed, so go check out their good work at slmedia.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. That's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisefectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got eight seasons worth of episodes all there for your listening pleasure. We're going to take a break for the summer, but Heidi, Dan, and I will be back in the fall, and we look forward to being with you then. Thank you so much for listening.